0: Today's program has been brought to you by Buy Right Market, a San Francisco food institution since 1940 with focus on creating community through food. For more information, visit www.BuyRightMarket.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more.
1: Good afternoon and welcome. This is Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. And on the phone today with me is Emily Meredith. Emily Meredith is the Communications Director for the Animal Agriculture Alliance. Established in 1987, the Animal Agriculture Alliance includes individuals, companies, and organizations who are interested in helping consumers better understand the role animal agriculture plays in providing a safe, abundant food supply to a hungry world. Emily is currently the Activist Watch blogger for MeetingPlace.com, which all of my regular listeners know is one of my very favorite publications. Emily, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for taking time out of your Sunday for us. Well, thanks for having me, Katie. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, why don't we start by telling us a little bit about um, the Animal Agricultural Alliance? Like, what, what, in general, do you guys do, and how do you get your message out to consumers?
2: Sure. Well, we have, as you said, we were established in 1987. We're a nonprofit organization, and we like to tell people that our membership really represents everyone from farm to fork. So we have farmers, ranchers, packers, processors, veterinarians, and then all of the national associations that represent the individual um, industry, so pork, turkey, chicken, eggs, and, of course, beef as well. So we really represent the whole gamut, and we try to educate consumers through a lot of grassroots, grassroots, grassroots efforts and also be that voice in the media that people can come to when they have specific questions. We're asked to speak on a variety of issues, but of course, recently there's been um, a lot of interest in the animal welfare humane handling um, gamut. So we are asked to speak a lot about that. And as a communications director, I kind of head up that effort to both educate and um, clarify any misconceptions or
1: misinformation that's out there. You and I are going to have a lot of meaningful conversations, but um, before <laughs> before we get off topic, I just wanted to ask you how did you become the um, how did you get elected as the activist watch blogger? Do well, they call it activist or ag-tivist?
2: Activist. Okay. Um, so the alliance actually, my predecessor had a blog for meeting place um, called Activist Watch. Yeah, that was Sarah so, Hubbard. Um, what Yes, Sarah Hubbard. So when I was brought on board, they asked if I wanted to continue, and I, of course, said yes. And the Alliance really has had a long history since its founding of kind of following the animal activist um, movements and kind of seeing what they're up to. And we have, I can't tell you how many files and boxes of information and books and Just everything, pamphlets that we have that kind of explains kind of their tactics and what they're up to and some of the campaigns that they engage in. So it's really, we're really the best suited organization to kind of take on a blog to really share that information with the industry. Because as you know, and as, as you said, your viewers know, that Meeting Place really is an industry um, publication. So it, it targets a lot of the same people that we represent. And so it's just another opportunity for us to kind of have a dialogue and get that information out there.
1: So um, why do you think you need an activist watch? I mean, first of all, let's clarify who are the groups that you're uh, calling activists? like who who are who are those people and what do you think their goal is and you know why do you need a watch
2: <laughs> sure well the groups that we um I won't say engage with, but the groups that we monitor are definitely the Humane Society, PETA, Farm Sanctuary, Compassion Over Killing. Um, Those are the ones that really do a lot. Um, Mercy for Animals is another one that I was uh, remiss to not mention. But we need this blog and we need an organization like ours because these groups have an agenda that's diametrically opposed to the industry that I work for, which is they really hope to see a vegan world. They really hope to see a world in which animals are not used for food production. And, of course, that undermines our entire industry. And so when they engage in campaigns that attempt to discredit or um, sling mud at the industry, we need an organization like the Alliance, and we need a blog like Activist Watcher to kind of tell people, hey, this is going on. You know, this is, these are some of the ways you protect yourself. But more importantly, these are the ways that you get out in front of their um, messaging and really educate consumers and the public about why this is not going on and how you are doing the right thing every day.
1: Well, I'm I'm a little curious um, about your sense of them being diametrically opposed. I'm sure some of them are, would like to see everyone become a vegan. Um, That will never happen, and I will certainly not be one of them. Um, On the other hand, like, for instance, the Humane Society uh, seems to me to be more involved in the message of we want to see uh, these various livestock uh, industries carry out their work in a humane and responsible and transparent way. And I don't think it's so much about making consumers stop eating meat. So I'm wondering why you feel like something like that, where it's all about animal handling and animal welfare, as opposed to an agenda about crushing your industry, which I I honestly don't see, Emily, I really don't see it.
2: Well, I I think it depends on, um, certainly, your perspective, um, for one. But I definitely think there have been instances where Wayne Pacelli has said that he um, doesn't want animals used for any purposes, even, you know, domestication and kept as pets. So there have been those statements that have been made by the leaders of these organizations that would lead the industry to believe that they're not really out for the best interest. And, of course, then there's also... The tactics that many of these groups employ, which is, um, oftentimes threatening, spreading misinformation. And so in my mind and in a lot of the industry's mind, that's not the best way to have some of those more meaningful discussions if that's really what they want to have about animal handling. I can just give you one example um, in particular. When I actually started this blog, my very first blog was just an introduction to myself, and it Mm -hmm. kind of was explaining how I got into the industry. I didn't grow up on a farmer ranch. I grew up in Wisconsin, but I came out here to D.C. for college, and while in college I started working for the Department of Agriculture as a speech writer. So that was really where I fell in love with the industry and really fell in love with the people that work in it and so I kind of outlined all of that in my very first blog and you know I'm a writer and uh, you know in the public eye so my, my blog perhaps was a tad pissy. Uh, you know I'm not really sure. I think it you know it, it walked the line I in my mind. I read the blog I didn't think it was pissy. But I got a pissy. lot of emails direct to my personal email which is one of the, you know, blessings and curses of being in the public eye that were just downright nasty, you know, telling me that I'm a murderer and that, you know, I'm a horrible person and that I should wash my back and that, um, you know, calling me names and, you know, directed at how I look or what I wear. And and I just don't think that that's the best way to achieve meaningful discourse. And I certainly... Don't feel like my blog attacked anyone to that extent at all. And so I was shocked. And I feel like a lot of the industry, um, that I've talked to and a lot of the people I've grown to know both at USDA and now in my current position have experienced tactics like that. So I don't see how that, you know, plays into the message of, well, we just want to work with you to ensure a better industry for everyone.
1: Uh, I would agree with you there. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to invite you on to the program, because I am absolutely of the persuasion that until uh, so-called activists start working with industry as opposed to against industry, we will never see a change or the changes in the industry that some of us would really like to see. And so that brings me to my next and the most important part of this whole interview, which is the agricultural or what you like to call farm protection laws, but what other people call the ag gag laws or agricultural gag laws. And I've done a couple of shows about this. And um, in the last few months, uh, five more states have introduced new bills, new legislation um, asking for uh, quote unquote, farm protection bills. So why don't you tell us why you call it farm protection and other people call it agricultural gag, gagging?
2: Well, I'll start by just saying that um, no one in the industry, including myself, endorses nor condones any mistreatment of animals. Um,
1: I and yet it would- does happen, Emily. I mean, you have to admit that.
2: Right. I mean, and I've admitted that in my blog that no, you know, the industry is not perfect. There's definitely room for improvement. But one of the reasons that in my mind and in a lot of the industry's mind, these bills actually protect um, animal welfare is because they don't prevent individuals from reporting instances of abuse. Rather, they mandate that they do. And we have a lot of examples, and I know that that was one thing we'll talk about later, of where these activists, these undercover activists actually hold this video, hold these images for months, weeks and months, before doing anything, and they don't report them to the proper authorities. They don't even report them to, you know, management at the operation they're at. And in my mind, that's not humane. It's not humane when you witness an issue and you don't report it and you just keep your cameras rolling. And I've said that in my blog, and it's no secret that I feel that way. And that's why a lot of the industry feels that this, these bills really protect animal welfare. Because if there is an issue, it mandates that you go to the proper authorities and you get it taken
1: care of. Okay, but I'm going to stop you right there because one of the things I have... Okay, I let me give you a little full disclosure here. I used to be a butcher. I worked um, in the industry for, for five years in the, on the retail level. And then a few years ago, I was taken to a plant in Fort Collins, Colorado, to the Cargill plant. And I was guided around by Temple Grand, and I saw basically the creme de la creme of processing plants. But what I also know is that there is an imperative to process as I mean, they are processing 4500 cattle a day at that plant. And there is an imperative to keep that line moving. And that is one reason why employees often do not report abuse to a manager. And it's because they stop the production line, and that costs money. So Literally, workers are discouraged from doing that and often penalized for doing so. The second thing I want to point out to you in terms of that is that there's never been a bill that did not mandate that you immediately reported your uh, your issue to whoever the authorities are. But if it's the plant management, I think there's a lot of, of, of hesitation amongst workers and even managers in doing so. And lastly, when you talk about an example of... Um, of knowing that abuse is going on for weeks and months. One of the reasons that the, that the other side offers as an excuse for that is that you want to show a pattern of systemic abuse. You know, calling blowing the whistle on one specific abuse episode does not allow a plant to address a systemic issue. And this is something that even Temple Grandin comes back to again and again, that there's a lot of problems with the training, there's a lot of problems with monitoring the workers, and that it really is a management issue that has to work from the top down to make sure that all of those protocols are met. And indeed, the cattle industry has been amazing in picking up uh, and, and really changing their practices. And I'm not trying to point the finger at them, but I'm just saying that when you put away uh, any opportunity for somebody to, to film on a sort of week-long basis abuses that are happening regularly, then you, you, you rob the, the authorities or, or the plant even of making sure that those abuses are addressed.
2: Well, I'll say a few things. First, I think we need to be careful in saying that abuses happen regularly because I do not think, myself included, that anyone in the industry would say that that was true. I think abuses happen occasionally. Um, I think they happen at times, but I don't think they are systemic or happen regularly. So I would just like to be careful in making sure that that viewpoint is out there. Number sure. two, I'll say that... Um, the videos that are taken and the photos that are taken, and I, I'm well aware that the other side says, well, we need to keep the cameras rolling for weeks or months to show, you know, a pattern of abuse. As I said in my most recent blog that, that ran last week, that's completely untrue. And even USDA Food Safety and Inspection Service would say that. Um, in fact, the quickest way to get your plant operation suspended is not an E. coli violation, which is very severe. It's actually an inhumane handling violation. It only takes one instance to get your operation suspended. It doesn't take, you get no more um, investigation or no Greater penalty by showing systemic abuse versus one instance. Mm-hmm. If you if you report one instance of abuse, that's automatic suspension and an investigation by FSIS. So who now, are you I reporting say- that to?
1: Let me ask you. So let me stop you for one second. Who, as a worker or as a manager, who are you reporting that instance to? Are you reporting it to your plant manager? Are you reporting it to USDA? Who who is where is the ch- show us the chain of command there in terms of reporting incidents.
2: Well, I'll say this. First, I I recognize that, you know, some plant workers may be hesitant to report to uh, management, but I will say this, that every plant has humane handling um, standards, they're called HACCP standards, and Mm -hmm. they have those in place. They also have employment agreements in place, and this is one of our biggest things um, that I often tell people is that even the undercover activists, when they're hired and are putting on the facade of being, you know, a worker just there to do a job, they're required to sign those employment agreements and in those employment agreements there are clauses that say if you witness abuse you are required to report it to plant management or to your you know shift supervisor and they sign those knowing that they're not going to do it and that's one of my biggest problems is that this characterization or this um you know this lean towards complete dishonesty. They sign this knowing they're not going to do it, and they don't do it, and they don't report it, and they don't give management even an opportunity to address any issues that they may have seen. And that's putting aside, these activists might, in in a lot of instances, they do find just one instance of, you know, a violation after being there for weeks or months, and that's what they make a video out of. And they don't give the management an opportunity to say, okay, we see what you're saying, there's a worker that's a problem, we need to retrain him or we need to fire him or we need to, you know, bring him up on animal cruelty violations, any of those things, they're, they're devoid of the opportunity to address those issues. And there are, there are F, FSIS inspectors in every operation yes. at all times that are performing slaughter, so they could also be going to those people, and they don't. So there's plenty of opportunities for them to be reporting this abuse and getting it handled a lot faster than holding on to a video for months before releasing it direct to CNN or the Washington Post or 2020, and then encouraging this public outcry that's generally, in my mind, misinformed. Mm
1: -hmm. You know, I would agree with you on a certain level with the fact that it's misinformed. I think that people have a very distorted view of what animal processing is about. Um, It's not a pretty, it's not a pretty industry. It never will be. Um, What you, what I think consumers most want to see is that animal welfare is respected and that the animals are respected and that the workers are respected. And I think that um, I'm going to, let's see, I want to read something that you wrote in your um, most recent blog, um, which gives you a little bit more of an opportunity to discuss what you think is being protected. You wrote, uh, legislators have introduced these bills because they believe they are necessary to the agriculture industry, a mainstay to their state economies, in the next, uh, let's see, in the next two blocks. I will explore the falsities being spread within about the misnamed ag-gag bills, the complexities behind the debate within our industry and how we can get ahead and out-PR the activist groups. So tell me, how does exactly a farm protection law protect farms and state economies. How does, how, does it, how does it relate to a state economy, for example?
2: Well, a lot of the areas where these bills have been introduced, agriculture is a huge part of their economies. In fact, agriculture is a huge part of our national economy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, to this day agriculture is one of the few industries that we actually are a net exporter of which we cannot say for basically any other products that we require and depend on every year every day as Americans um, so to lose an industry like that which again you know I think we'll have to agree to disagree on this but I would say that the majority of activists don't like this industry, don't want it to continue, but losing an industry that's as vital to our national and state economies as agriculture is would be a catastrophe, number one. Number two, these legislators have really introduced these bills because they believe in them and they believe that there is a culture of dishonesty, deception, manipulative tactics, and misinformation that's really spread by the activist community. And uh, one of the ways they do this is through these videos. And, I've said in my blog that just what ran last week, and I'll say it again, is that in no, in no articles that these groups author, do they ever admit the fact that these videos are used primarily for their fundraising purposes. And I think that that's important to know, and people need to realize that that's what these videos are used for. But these and are nonprofit say, organizations,
1: Emily. I mean, they're not looking to make money. They're just looking to stay afloat. And I, I, you know, I don't see. Well, they're definitely
2: staying afloat. They, they. I mean, I can tell you that they have a lot more money than my than the Alliance does, and they have a lot more resources and opportunities to um, spread information than than an organization like us does, just because of the sheer amount of donations that they get every year. Yeah, but
1: are you saying that, for instance, beef checkoff or pork checkoff, any of the trade orgs uh, in the animal agriculture industry do not? Widely support um, and and lobby heavily and give money to legislators in order to, for instance, pass uh, these so-called farm protection bills. I mean that I, that seems a bit disingenuous to me, just because I think there is an enormous amount of money in the in the animal agricultural industry, including uh, gigantic world players like Cargill, like Tyson, Smithfield, all of these guys. You're telling me that they don't support you as much as Grassroots supports uh, HSUS?
2: I would say that they definitely support us and they definitely give money. You know, I have to say, just to clarify, we're a non-profit so we don't lobby. Um, we make people aware of issues and we you know, mobilize our membership to be aware of what's going on in the state and federal level, but we don't lobby. We don't go into any state houses or into the f- into, onto the hill here in no, CZ and you don't specifically. do anything like that. that. Yeah. But there are organizations for every industry that does that and as you mentioned, the checkoff industry, you know, the checkoff programs for every industry, they give money to those programs. But I will say that, for example, Humane Watch just released a report um, in conjunction with their Super Bowl commercial that, you know, they release a report every year, but this most recent report said that less than one penny of every dollar that's raised by the Humane Society actually goes to what they tell donors it goes to, which is to support local animal shelters. In fact, the Humane Society, I believe to this day only has one shelter that they actually run and operate out of New York City. So I feel like I'm in a better position or our organization is in a better position because we are very upfront about what we do, as are the checkoff organizations. They don't hide what they do. And I feel like the Humane Society and other activist organizations really are dishonest about where those donations are being spent.
1: I'm not sure I agree with you about that. I think that that these organizations, um, I think, for example, the Humane Society of the United States has never pretended that their entire mandate is to provide shelters for abandoned or abused animals. I mean, I don't think that's what they are meant to do. I don't think that's how the public perceives them or their mission. I think they're much more perceived as uh, a group that goes after guys like you, you know, the the, the agricultural uh, livestock industry. And while I think that... um, you know, I'm amazed at the at the progress the industry has made, but I also have to say that without some of the videos that we've seen, a lot of that progress probably would not have made. And I'm going to refer specifically to the incident a few years ago with the Westlake Hallmark plant where the downer cattle were being forced up on their feet with prods and or with forklifts and into the slaughter facility, which is a clear violation of SSIS safety standards as well as being inhumane and the only way that 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 information would have made it to the public eye was through the efforts of these activist groups. So I'm going to make this, we have to uh, unfortunately close in a few minutes, but I'm going to make this question to you, Emily. Do you believe, as Temple Grandin does, and as some other people in the industry believe, that a third party audited video stream in every processing plant in the United States would go a long way towards mitigating public perception of animal abuse and cruelty, uh, mitigating public fears about food safety, and making the industry more transparent. Do you not think that would be a desirable uh, progress for the industry?
2: I think for sure that audits And video feeds would go a long way towards transparency. Now, I don't believe that that third party should be any of the activist groups that do it undercover. Well, Temple doesn't agree either. She
1: has a she she's you know she's not suggesting that it's HSUS that that monitors those videos. She's saying that it's a third party, an independent, you know, non-industry player on either side who simply does these audits. Right. Why do you think the industry is so against that? um, Pardon? The industry, I mean, I've talked to guys like Raul Baxter from the cattle industry, Chuck Jolly from the cattle industry, and they're like, no, 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 no. that would be terrible. Why do you think they feel that way?
2: Um, Because I think there's a lot of mistrust out there. I think that the industry feels very um, attacked and feels like people don't appreciate what they do. And I I think that... you know, when you feel like what you do in your life's work, and, you know, I was just in Tampa for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association National Convention, and I have to say that I was truly touched by the people that I met there, and that these people really believe in what they do, you know, they believe in their ranches, their ranches have been in their families, passed down for generations, and I feel like there is a huge disconnect between the consumer and the food, you know, this country is fed by less than 2% of our population, so every... Most The majority of our country is removed from the farm. They don't know how their food gets to their grocery store. I was talking to a woman um, who said that she met a woman on the plane, and the woman said, oh, you know, I thought that cowgirls were made up. That they mm-hmm. didn't exist. So there's obviously people that need to be better informed, and I tell people every day that we in the industry need to be telling people, "Hey, this is what we're doing. We are doing the right thing, and this is how we're doing the right thing." And I would say that one of the best programs I've seen was is actually the Tyson Farm Check program, um, which is an audit that they've done in their entire system, and they, you know, have been They will be publishing the results if they haven't already, and sharing that information with people to kind of again reiterate that hey, you know, we're a big corporation, but we are doing the right thing at every level of our, you know, supply chain and our operations processes, and here's how. And we just need to continue as an industry to do more and more of that to really educate people um, about what is going on. And I actually said to my husband that if the average consumer had been at this convention and had met the people I've met, met these ranchers and met these, you know, feedlot owners, I don't think that we would have some of the perception issues we're having because these people are truly, you know, Know, some of the most passionate kindest and and just best people that i've ever ever met and it's a privilege to work in the industry every day
1: i don't think any consumer questions uh the commitment or the passion or the difficulty and challenges of raising animals for food um and i don't think that the accusations uh that what you call activist groups are leveled at uh, ranchers or farmers on that level, the cow-calf operation, um, you know, even the feeder cattle operations. I think where people get concerned is in the confined area feeding operations, and I've seen a few of them. I personally... You know, and I don't actually have a problem with them unless they're really filthy and horrible. Um, I, cattle are are herd animals; they like to be close together. It's not a big surprise to see them all in one place, right. no matter what. You know, and I think the public has a problem with that idea. They don't understand that that is the 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 way that population exists. They like it; they're herds. Um, I think that the biggest issue in the cattle industry is the transparency in processing facilities. And if if you want to take anything back from this interview, uh, to your organization and to uh, the NCBA and, and, you know, the AMA and all of that, you know, it's to say that what those guys need to do is they do need to create that sense of transparency. They do need to let consumers know that they are, you know, across the board, concerned more with animal welfare than they are with their bottom line. Because the fact of the matter is, Emily, and you know this better than I do, the chain speed at which these processing operations operates is not only great for worker safety, in fact, it's dangerous, but it's also really dangerous in terms of workers not being able to report abuses as they see them, afraid to report abuses if and when they see them, and that they also you know it's it's almost endemic the way people are hired for for processing jobs it's not whether or not you have any skills in dealing with animals it's whether or not you can you know uh you know make a film on a mirror you know like whether or not you're breathing basically it's a hard work low paid they use a lot of illegal workers there's no real incentive for these people to do the right thing when it comes to animal welfare and animal safety and i think that is the biggest problem in the industry that needs to be addressed right now and that's what you guys should be taking out to the public is that yes we're doing this we're putting in the third party auditing stream we're doing everything we can to make temple Grandin's handling facilities you know you. We're training our workers. That's what you need to say to consumers, to make them feel like eating industrially uh, processed meat is a safe and uh, morally and ethically responsible choice. Sorry about the sermon there, but that's what, that's what I'm seeing. I mean, as a person who works in the, in the industry, in the food industry, I'm telling you that's what people want. That's what they're looking for.
2: I mean, there's always opportunities to do better. But I would again say, you know, as a caution that I don't think that issues are widespread. And I think by and large that... You know these processing facilities are doing the right thing. Um, of course, as I've said, and I'm no, you know, I'm not shy about this. I've said in every blog that there's of course room for improvement. But um, I will ta- I will tell you one more thing from this conference sure. that I heard a speaker, and um, from Kansas State University, and he said that until that until people in the industry can make mistakes without instant condemnation, there will never be an opportunity to have meaningful discourse with the activist groups. And that statement really resonated with me for several reasons. A uh, First being that I think it's completely true. I think that people always make mistakes. Industries make mistakes. Companies make mistakes. I mean, just look at, you know, Toyota. the banking industry and the mortgage industry, you yes. know, and, and the whole mm-hmm. mess of the economy that we're in now. I mean, things happen, things go wrong. And, you know, that is that's a complete fact. But People don't need, the industry doesn't need someone, you know, over their shoulder. Broadcasting their weakest moments at every turn. I will say till you know my dying breath that the that abuse issues, inhumane handling issues, aren't systemic of the industry. That they happen um, in specific incidences, and unfortunately, the activists wait around for those incidents to happen so that they can broadcast them. And I can't tell you how many videos I see where they use the same footage over and over again. And the fact of the matter is, is that We need, if they really want to work together and work to improve the industry, they need to give the industry their props, quote-unquote. They need to give them their kudos when they are doing the right thing. And they need to show them that, hey, we're just not out to bash you, that we're here for meaningful discourse. And I don't know if that can occur, but I think the ball is truly in their court because these are the people that have been on the attack front for so long that it's put the industry on the defensive. And if they want the industry to get off the defensive and to come to the table, then they need to show that they're coming from a place of respect, of respecting the industry, and that they're open to being respected as well. And I think that's that's what we need to do. In this hyper-social world, you know, I work in communications, as do you. You know, as a journalist, you know how quickly information is disseminated. And so... You know, the industry can't be always instantly condemned for a mistake. They need to be able to make mistakes and, um, you know, improve upon, though, look at those mistakes and see how they can correct them and improve upon, you know, the systems that are in place without fear of instant retribution, you know, on every Twitter feed and on in every instant news banner across the country. And that's really, I think, where what the bottom line
1: is. Emily, you have been a fabulous guest. I thank, well, thank you, you. you so much. You're a great, articulate spokesperson for your industry, I hope you will come back and talk to me again. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I hope it's the beginning of a dialogue between these groups and your groups. I mean, I, with you, agree that what needs to happen is respectful and meaningful dialogue that, uh, you know, people in the in the livestock, uh, animal livestock, uh, agricultural industry work their tails off. We have an unbelievably cheap supply of meat. It provides a huge chunk of our national gross domestic product and um, And, you know, more respect has to be paid. But by the same token, more respect has to be paid by them, you know, by your side in terms of what consumer concerns are about their food supply. So uh, with that, I will say goodbye to you and thank you so much again. This is Emily Meredith from the Animal Agricultural Alliance. She writes regularly for meetingplace.com as the activist watch and I urge you to tune into that publication, learn more about the industry that we all care so much about because after all, meat is the center of our plate and it ain't going away soon. Thanks again, Emily. And next week, my friends, we will be talking to Nathaniel Johnson, author of All Natural, A Skeptic's Quest, to discover if the natural approach to diet, childbirth, healing, and the environment really keeps us healthier and happier. That should be a lot of fun. And thanks so much for tuning in today. And thanks to my sponsor, Buy Right, Best Market in San Francisco. See you next week, folks.
0: We'd like to send a special thank you to our latest business member, BuyRite Market in San Francisco. BuyRite is a grocery store that features organic and locally produced goods. They build meaningful relationships with each of their extended family. The food they make and sell connects staff, guests, producers, and the environment. In this way, BuyRite creates community through food. For more information, visit www.BuyRightMarket.com. To learn more about becoming a business member, email us, info at heritageradionetwork.org. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network.